Our call to worship comes from Psalm 85. I am listening to what the Lord God is saying. He promises peace to us, his own people, if we do not go back to our foolish ways. Surely he is ready to save those who honour him, and his saving presence will remain in our land. Love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Human loyalty will reach up from the earth and God's righteousness will look down from heaven. The Lord will make us prosperous and our land will produce rich harvests. Righteousness will go before the Lord and prepare the path for him. Our prayers of approach and confession this morning are taken from the roots material. Let's come to God in prayer together. Let us pray. God speaks comfort to our hearts, saying, I will never leave you. Loving God, hear us. Faithful God, be near us. Holy God, renew us in the image of Christ by your Spirit's power. Today, and always. See, God is near. Lord, give us eyes to see your ways and works. You weigh our actions and intentions. Forgive the times when we do not measure up. In the stillness, we lay before you the times when we should have acted and didn't, and the times when we acted and should have listened first. Set our hearts and minds on you, O God. You see the desires of all our hearts, so often confused and wrongly directed. In the stillness we lay before you, the times when we thought we knew best, the times when we longed for things instead of you. Set our hearts and minds on you, Oh God, you know our need of you, though we often cover it with distractions. In the stillness, we lay before you the times when we failed to speak your word, the times we failed to live in your light. Set our hearts and minds on you, O oh God. You know the plans you have for us, plans for a future filled with hope. In the stillness, we lay before you our lack of faith and all our shaky trust. Set our hearts and minds on you, O God. Keep us walking in your way, today and always. Amen. The first reading this morning is taken from the book of Amos in the Old Testament. It's found on page 892, chapter 7, verses 7 to 15. A vision of a plumb line. I had another vision from the Lord. In it, I saw him standing beside a wall that had been built with the help of a plumb line. And there was a plumb line in his hand. He asked me, 
What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I answered. Then he said, I'm using it to show that my people are like a wall that is out of line. I will not change my mind again about punishing them. The places where Isaac's descendants worship will be destroyed. The holy places of Israel will be left in ruins. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to an end. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, then sent a report to King Jeroboam of Israel. Amos is plotting against you among the people. His speeches will destroy the country. This is what he says. Jeroboam will die in battle and the people of Israel will be taken away from their land into exile. Amaziah then said to Amos, That's enough, prophet. Go on back to Judah and do your preaching there. Let them pay you for it. Don't prophesy here at Bethel anymore. This is the king's place of worship, the national temple. Amos answered, I am not the kind of prophet who prophesies for pay. I am a herdsman, and I take care of fig trees. But the Lord took me from my work as a shepherd and ordered me to come and prophesy to his people Israel. And the second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 and verse 14, and it's found on page 53 of the New Testament. Now King Herod heard about all this because Jesus' reputation had spread everywhere. Some people were saying, John the Baptist has come back to life. That is why he has this power to perform miracles. However, others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets long ago. When Herod heard it, he said, He is John the Baptist. I had his head cut off, but he has come back to life. Herod himself had ordered John's arrest, and he had chained and put him in prison. Herod did this because of Herodias, whom he had married, even though she was the wife of his brother Philip. John the Baptist kept telling Herod, It isn't right for you to be married to your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not because of Herod. Herod was afraid of John because he knew that John was a good and holy man, and so he kept him safe. He liked to listen to him, even though he became greatly disturbed every time he heard him. Finally, Herodias got her chance. It was on Herod's birthday when he gave a feast for all the chief government officials, the military commanders, and the leading citizens of Galilee. The daughter of Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and his guests. So the king said to the girl, What would you like to have? I will give you anything you want. With many vows, he said to her, I swear that I will give you anything you ask for, even as much as half my kingdom. 
So the girl went out and asked her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. The girl hurried back at once to the king and demanded, I want you to give me here and now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. This made the king very sad, but he could not refuse her because of the vows he had made in front of all his guests. So he sent off a guard at once with orders to bring John's head. The guard left, went to the prison and cut John's head off. Then he brought it on a dish and gave it to the girl who gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and buried it. Amen. This is God's word. So, those of you who have been watching the Olympics, who's been inspiring you? Who have you watched? The women. Thank you, Alison. Anybody else been inspired by anybody in the Olympics? Sorry? Wiggins, the cyclist. Thank you. Anybody else? The oars. Thank you. Oars, men and women. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to show you photographs of two people who I have found inspiring, and those who read my blog will already have seen these two. Um, the first one, anybody who knows know who this one is? Jo- Joanna Rousel, who was one of the Team GB Women's Pursuit team who won a gold medal. And she stood on the medal rostrum bareheaded. Uh, Joanna suffers from alopecia totalis, has done since she was 10 years old. And she is just, for me, a picture of beauty and health and confidence. A brave woman who stands up for what she wants to do. Um, Somebody very different. Anybody recognise this one? Saudi Arabian judoka. Um, She was competing for the first time. It's the first time that Saudi Arabia and some of the Arab Muslim countries have permitted women to compete. And the International Olympic Committee said, unless you have women athletes, you can't take part. Um, Her name, I apologise for mispronunciations, is something like Wajdan Sarikai or something like that. So I apologise. I really ought to go and check these pronunciations She's very brave. She stood up for her culture. She said, I won't compete unless I can wear a headscarf. And the judo people agreed to let her wear a headscarf. Her father's very brave. He has been criticised for allowing his daughter to compete. And she and the other um, Arabic women from Muslim countries have been branded by their country folk as prostitutes for taking part. So she also inspires me. But I have some other people who are not in the Olympics who perhaps inspire and challenge us. So let's see if we know who any of these are. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit about Aung San Suu Kyi, Alison? She has led the democratic movement in her country. Yep. Myanmar. Myanmar. Yep. 
And what has that cost her? Thank you. Yep, so she was held under house arrest for many years. Anybody who know who that one is? It's a man this time, just to prove I do have some men in. Um, I don't think he's South African. Yes, that's right. Chinese poet, um, Ai Weiwei. And he also has um, been arrested, I believe, for the stuff that he has written. He faced that consequence. Okay, a bit of uh, Baptist history coming up for you now. Martin Luther King. What did Martin Luther King do? Nothing, apparently. (laughs) Civil rights in America. Yep, he was a black North American who, with others, stood up for the rights of black people, and in the end it cost him his life. He was assassinated. Nelson Mandela. So where's he from? And he spent how many years in prison? A very long... I, don't, I forgot to check, but it was a lifetime, for, for basically. He spent in prison because he stood up again, for the rights of black people, um, and that that was not deemed acceptable. More history, especially for Graham, this one, he's smiling. Anyone else apart from Graham know who this one is? No, it's not Nemo, but good, good try. Yep, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We'll come back to Nemo later. Um, But Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood against uh, the Nazis and was part of the Confessing Church in Germany, was arrested and he was executed just before the end of the Second World War. And lastly, though I could go on all morning with pictures, Archbishop Oscar Romero, where was he, roughly? El Salvador, he was indeed. And what happened to him? What did he do? He was somebody who stood up for the rights of his people. He spoke out about the disappearance of young men. He even, he's a Roman Catholic archbishop, um, he was more concerned about the people in his country than the minutiae of the rules of the Roman Catholic Church. He was actually murdered as he was leading the Mass, the Communion. It's quite uh, bizarre standing behind a communion table saying that. But he died for what he believed in. It has been said, if there is nothing worth dying for, in the end, you die for nothing. Each of the people we've looked at stood up for what they believed in, what they believed to be good and true. Many of them from the basis of Christian conviction, or certainly from faith conviction. With the one exception of Joanna, most of them have been vilified, though I'm sure she's taken some stick along the way. Many have been imprisoned, some have been executed or assassinated. Though I suspect the distinction between execution and assassination is not always so clear. The story of John the Baptist, as recorded in the Gospels, is one of those we like to avoid. 
it shocks us. It disgusts us. And actually, perhaps we wish it wasn't there. Quite often, we kind of skirt around it. We just miss it out, saying, oh, well, of course, it's not really suitable for children, is it? Children to whom we tell stories about wolves gobbling up grandmothers. We let them watch Bambi or The Lion King or read Harry Potter, all of which have violence, betrayal, and death in them. So that's not a good enough reason not to engage with it. I'd like to suggest that our endeavours to clean up scripture, to cut out the bits that disquiet or disgust us, are dishonest. And I'd also want to argue that to ignore the story of John the Baptist dishonours the memory of the people whose faces now lie on the floor around the communion table. Because somehow that denies the significance of what they too have experienced as they have stood up for truth and justice. I get very annoyed, I have to say, when large amounts of newsprint and uh, radio and television news time are devoted to Christians in Britain whinging about their right to wear a cross on their uniform, as if that is somehow persecution. When actually, in parts of the world, there are countless men and women being arrested imprisoned and executed for even daring to profess faith in Christ or for speaking out for those in their own societies who have no voice to speak themselves. We, and I count myself very much in this, like our Christianity, comfortable and easy. We want legal protection from challenge or ridicule. We want our way to hold sway throughout our nation But at the same time, we don't want the state to tell us what we can or cannot do. I think very often we miss the point. Passages like this one about John the Baptist are important because they are examples of precisely what Jesus told his followers to expect. Discipleship is costly, sometimes to the point of death. So if we aren't willing to accept that fact, that truth, then maybe we shouldn't sign up in the first place. With all that in mind, let's look at the passage and begin to see what it might have to say to us. The author of Mark tells this story as a kind of an excursus. If you remember last week, he'd just sent out the disciples in twos, to go and teach and heal and spread the good news. And next week, we will pick up the story when they come back. But Mark chooses to put this little sort of meanwhile back at the ranch story in, in that gap. So why is that? Is he just filling up some space? Or has he got something he really wants us to grasp? The commentators are quite clear. This is no padding. This is not just a filler so that we don't go, he sent them out, they came back. This is there to say something to us. We're told that people begin to wonder who Jesus is. They've heard reports of what he's done, perhaps what his followers are now doing, and they're intrigued. And rumours begin to spread that just maybe Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. 
Or maybe he's Elijah. Or maybe at least a prophet in the style of those way back in history. For certain sure, this is no ordinary man. He's a lot more than a jumped-up carpenter from Nazareth. And the rumours spread, and it seems that even the puppet king, Herod, who had ordered and most probably witnessed John's execution, believes that Jesus could be John resurrected. Back from the grave to haunt him, maybe. Of the four Gospels, Mark gives the greatest prominence to the story of John. The first person we encounter in Mark's Gospel is John in the wilderness, the prophet who has a sharp tongue, who announces the coming of one greater than him. John's fearless denunciation of what he saw to be evil courted controversy, and his outspoken criticism of Herod landed him in jail. In these few verses, we hear the end of John's story, as the way is cleared completely for Jesus to fulfill his role. Any hints of uncertainty about the separate identity of the two is swept away. But actually, we see ever more clearly how John is a forerunner, even a type, if that's the language you like, for Jesus. John is arrested. John is executed. Just as, in due course, Jesus will be arrested and executed. For Mark's readers, this ugly tale, and it is an ugly tale, gives a hint of what is going to happen eventually in the story of Jesus that he's telling. So it's back at the ranch and a glimpse of where we're going. Another way we can look at this story is about power and corruption. Herod is a king in name only. He is a puppet king. The land is occupied by Rome. His power and authority are limited, but he still likes to play the part of the grand ruler, hosting banquets and having lots of fine food and so on. Quite how he came to marry his brother's wife, we're not told. But from what we are told, we can see that this is no Levirate marriage, aimed at producing an heir for a childless older brother, but a relationship born out of lust. This is not a loving relationship. This is not a relationship that John fails can be defended. This is purely a lustful relationship. A powerful man, just taking what he wants. And Herodias, it seems, is a scheming, jealous, bitter woman, waiting for the chance to get back at John for what he's said. Presumably, because she enjoys the high life too. And then there's a daughter who we'll come back to shortly. Now, as I spoke about Herodias being bitter and jealous and scheming, I know because I could see it on people's faces, there's some people going, here we go again, women portrayed as the root cause of all evil. But that's not fair to the text, and that's not fair to the Mark gospel, and actually it's not fair to the Bible. Mark has already given us a lot of positive images of intelligent, faithful, and feisty women, and will continue to do so. The woman with the hemorrhage who made her way through the crowd. The daughter of Jairus. The Syrophoenician woman who had that interesting conversation with Jesus about crumbs in the tables and so on. Church history has, quite often, 
rendered women as seductresses. I don't think it's fair to say that scripture does. Sometimes we need to recognize that there is good and bad in both men and women. And sometimes we need to be very careful to see what the Bible actually says, rather than simply projecting onto it our own hang-ups and cultural conditionings. So let's take a moment to think about the daughter. European art and church tradition have blatantly transformed the daughter of Herodias, herself sometimes called Herodias and sometimes Salome or Salome, depending where you went to school, into a scarlet woman. She enters a banquet where the men are already drunk and dances the dance of a prostitute, sexually alluring and deliberately provocative. Can you tell me where it says that in the Bible? It doesn't. There is no basis for that apart from bad exegesis and dangerous interpretation. In the original Greek, the word used for this daughter is the same word as is used for the daughter of Jairus, a word that translates little girl. Herodias' little girl went and danced before her stepfather. So not a striptease there, not some kind of sexual innuendo, but perhaps a bit more like a 10-year-old who's just learned to dance, going and, and dancing in a party in front of her dad. Less Britain's gone to, got talent, because that is a bit sexualized, if we're honest, and more family party gone horribly wrong. Can we dare to imagine this of a little girl, about perhaps eight years old, who's performed her newly learned ballet routine, a little bit stumbling perhaps, but you know, she's charmed everybody. Her dad's thrilled, he looks around and everybody's really smiling and happy because his little girl has danced this amazing dance. He, unfortunately, is so drunk and so power-crazed and so wanting adulation, he says, Well, my darling, you can have anything you like, up to half my kingdom. Can't do a very good impression of a drunk man, I'm sorry. He's not really in his right mind. He has no kingdom to give her half of, because Rome is in charge. But he makes this grand gesture in front of his friends. And the little girl becomes a pawn in a very ugly game of jealousy and revenge. Perhaps one of the things we can learn from this is how easily children are unwittingly the vehicles of adult manipulation and sinfulness. How often is it that in relationship breakdown, children find themselves caught in ugly situations over which they have no control? But also perhaps there's just a hint of something for our own thinking, that we sometimes make grand gestures without thinking through what it is we're saying and when we find ourselves caught out do we risk ridicule or do we follow through on a bad call but perhaps the most directly important point for us to note is the cost to John of his convictions seems that Herod quite liked John He was fascinated by this wild preacher who had the guts to stand up to authority. 
but he liked his status and his friends more. If there was a choice to be made, his desire for popularity and power would win out. Now, John was nobody's fool. He must have had an idea just what he was getting involved with, but he refused to retract what he believed to be right. If that meant he lost his livelihood, so be it. If that meant going to prison, so be it. If that meant being executed at the whim of a foolish ruler, so be it. I find that incredibly challenging. I've really struggled with that this week. Because it seems an incredibly high price. Would I honestly risk being executed for what I believe? If I'm honest, no, I wouldn't. Would I go to prison? And I don't just mean the way that some people go and sit in a protest line and get arrested and kept overnight and then let go with a warning because we're nice middle-class people making our peaceful protests. I mean be imprisoned long-term. No, I wouldn't. Actually, I wouldn't do the overnight stuff either. And would I lose my livelihood? Would I let the Baptist Union of Scotland or Baptist Union or Great British Britain strike me off their list? Actually, no, I wouldn't. Does that make me a coward? Yeah, I think it probably does. But I like to think I'm an honest coward. Sometimes Christians plead their rights when their convictions bring them in conflict with the state. I think those people, us people, should look at the examples of John and Jesus and Bonhoeffer and Romero and the other people whose faces are on our floor and take a thought. There is something there, I think, as the saying goes, either put up or shut up. Stand up for what you believe or stop whinging. So if we're not going to follow the path of John to beheading or the path of Jesus to the cross, what are we going to do? Some Christians say, well, of course, God wouldn't call us to suffer. Well, that's kind of nice, isn't it? But it's not always true. But if we are honest enough to say, actually, we don't want to suffer, then what? If standing up for what we believe doesn't cost us anything, not even the heart-searching that I've done this week as to what to say and not say in this sermon, then I think probably we need something more demanding to believe in and be passionate about. There are plenty of things, plenty of injustices in society for which we could stand up. 
at less cost than life or imprisonment or loss of role, but would still cost us. Douglas mentioned Pastor Martin Niemöller at the start of the sermon, and that was very helpful because I wanted to quote a poem attributed to him. He was a German pastor at the time of the Nazi uh, power. The poem runs roughly like this. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came to trade unionists, and I didn't speak out, because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out, because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Who is it that God calls us to speak up for? People of other races? People of other faiths? People of different sexual orientation from our own? People whose political opinions challenge us? If there's nothing worth dying for, in the end, you die for nothing. Are you sitting uncomfortably? Then John has done his job. In our intercessory prayers this morning, we're going to focus on those who are fearful of the future. The day that Katrina mailed me and asked if I would take a prayer of intercession this morning, I sat and watched the evening news and felt that there was nothing more appropriate for us as Christ's people than to pray for those poor folks in Syria. The situation has dragged on and on, and the supporting caste seems to be falling away. The ambassador in London resigned because he couldn't make sense of what they were trying to do. And then recently, uh, Kopi Annan has washed his hands of all the machinations that are going on behind the scenes. And so we come, not so much to pray for great men, but to pray for many men and women, boys and children, who have gone through literally hell on earth. Let's pray together. Living God, we've come this morning to pray for those who fear the future with uncertainty or anxiety. Those who fear it, those who despair despair of it, or those who feel they have no future. We pray for those in the troubled places of our world who long for peace, an end to conflict, a time of harmony, but two in their hearts have given up hoping. We pray for those who face trauma and upheaval in their lives. What seemed secure swept from under them. What they had hoped for denied them. What they had trusted in proven to be false. We pray for those who doubt their ability to cope with what life may bring. 
Those overwhelmed by pressures, paralyzed by fears, crushed by sorrows. And we pray for all those faced with difficult decisions, whose circumstances are beyond their control, who face unexpected dangers and awkward choices. Living God, reach out to all for whom the future seems uncertain or unwelcome, and bring the assurance that even in the darkest moments, the greatest challenges, the most worrying times, you are there working out your purpose, able to bring light out of darkness, hope from despair, joy out of sorrow, and good out of evil. Grant to all those many thousands who live in this awful situation the confidence that there is nothing on heaven or earth, in life or death, in the present or the future, that is finally able to separate them from your love. We bring this prayer from our hearts and we bring it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Faithful God, you will never look away from us or leave us in our time of need. Help us to listen for your voice. Help us to look to you for direction. Help us to walk each day in your love. And as we go from here, bless us all with soft hearts and open minds, so that we may indeed follow the examples of John and of Jesus today and every day. Thank you.